What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Her American Story, a podcast where first and second generation American women share their stories about growing up in the United States. I'm your host, Jasmine. To learn more about my guests, visit heramericanstory.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at heramstory. Feedback, would you like to be on the show? Send me an email, heramericanstory at gmail.com. I've got another great story for you today, so let's get started. Welcome to Her American Story. Today we have Dr. Mihalis with us, and she we're going to start off by having her tell us a little bit about herself and her story. Hi, my name is Dr. Stephanie Mihalis. I am a licensed and board certified psychologist located in Los Angeles, California. I have moved around a lot and then ended up back here full circle in Los Angeles because I felt it was really important to be back with my family, specifically my parents as they aged. I did my undergraduate training at Northwestern University in Chicago. And then I actually moved to New York City because I thought that I was going to be in business. And then approximately six days before September 11th, when I had just graduated college, uh, 9-11 happened. And that was a big trauma for me because I was supposed to be at the Twin Towers. And I woke up late and I am never late to anything. And uh, my life was kind of saved that day. And that was kind of the impetus for me to start my work uh, with children and families. And then I kind of had that epiphany. And so I started kind of hustling and figuring out a way to go to graduate school. And then I went to University of South Florida where I did my training in psychology. And then I made my way up to Baltimore where I did my pre and postdoc fellowship at the Kennedy Krieger Institute and Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And then I came back here to Los Angeles where I'm currently at in private practice at the Center for Wellbeing and also a volunteer clinical faculty at UCLA School of Medicine. Wow. So there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> let's, let's start off with, um, oh my gosh, I, I really want to ask about September 11th and, and how that, how you process that. Gosh, that, I can't even imagine that, that's, that that must have been quite something. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, for my whole life, interestingly, my dad is a physician. He is a first generation immigrant his father is from Greece. So that has been kind of a big impact on my life. And he was kind of raised in poverty. And I have seen kind of the trials and tribulations of his life. And then obviously he put his way through medical school and everything because his family couldn't help him as very poor immigrants. And he always said to me, 
I love being a doctor. I love giving back to the community, but being a doctor is so difficult. Do not go into medicine. Medicine has changed. Medicine is not what it used to be, you know, 30 years ago and all of these things. And as a child growing up, I worked in his practice pretty much every year since I was probably eight years old because he always instilled in me the importance of hard work. Obviously, as children of immigrants, you know, I think that we're raised believing that and knowing that and doing that. And so growing up, I always heard in the back of my head, no medicine, no medicine, no medicine. Yet I was instilled to help people. So it was this weird kind of juxtaposition and contradiction kind of in my soul versus what I knew intellectually. And so September 11th happened and it was so difficult to process because I was, you know, in my head going to business, but the trauma of September 11th shook me to my core that I think what was in my soul was healing people and helping people. And I always saw that in my father and also in my mother who was a nurse. And it was really in the soul line and in the generational line to heal and to help. And so that is kind of what drove me into psychology because it was still an allied health profession, but it wasn't medicine because again, I was told no medicine. (laughs) Um, And so that's how I was able to process and heal um, and kind of work through that intergenerational kind of uh, pattern that was sent down to me. Now, what was it like? Um, I guess, you know, not many eight-year-olds are typically helping out in the family business. (laughs) Did you notice um, kind of amongst your peers at that age that you were a little different or that your family values were a little different? Yeah. So, you know, here in Los Angeles, I think that I was raised among a couple different subsections. So there was like the Caucasian subsection where I definitely was different. Like they were traveling in their summers and doing summer camps, which I also was able to do some summer camps and we traveled, but I also was working and that group population, they were not working in the family business. And then there were quite a few, uh, immigrant families where I did see some of them working to some capacity. And so, you know, I think we were able to kind of share amongst ourselves like, oh, yeah, like our parents make us work, they make us hustle. And so we could kind of agree that we were different. Um, And so it was nice to have some kindred spirits. But I also knew that to some degree, I was different. Like, And I think now looking back, I can really appreciate it. But at the time, I do think it was quite difficult because I did want to be traveling and, you know, doing some of the things that everyone else was doing. And it was frustrating to have to be working quite a bit. I can can imagine as a kid. Um, And so what was it like through, you know, kind of as you got older, um, what were there still differences that you noted between you and your peers or, or what by that time had you kind of, you know, developed the same type of routines as everybody else? Because now I guess by high school, a lot of folks are working and, and it's kind of the norm. Mm-hmm. So I think by then, as I started to get older, my parents, 
you know, let up a bit. And so then they allowed me to transition to doing internships, you know, so I think it was just more of a different type of work. And so then it was more of kind of the normative fashion, but I still ended up helping oftentimes when like there was a week or two off. But by that time, what I noticed was different was that I had cultivated relationships with many of their patients in the office um, because many of the patients stayed with my mom and dad in their private practice for many, many years. And so what I learned was the value of relationships and the value of connection. And I think that that likely kind of helped me in my career now is that it's not just about, you know, money or just about moving a patient in and out of the door, um, but there's something very deep about a connection with a patient and about care and taking you know, an extra five minutes to think through history and think through uh, what's important to a patient rather than just a diagnosis or, um, you know, collateral information. Um, and I really learned that over the years when I saw patients coming back and telling me how important my parents were in their life. Um, and so I think that at that point in my life in high school, I actually realized that what they offered me was pretty critical um, over the years. It's truly valuable experience. I don't think you could get otherwise. Um, and to get it at, at an age where you're just kind of soaking things in and learning about yourself and uh, to develop that that empathy, that's that's <laughs> awesome. Um, now, where what were you where were you heading with the business uh, degree? What were you hoping to to kind of do with that? I mean, I, I clearly had no idea what I thought I was doing, but I thought I was going to be a CEO of a company, which is seriously ridiculous, but I kept telling myself that I was going to be a CEO. Um, obviously, now I'm, quote, a CEO of my private practice, um, but back then I thought that that's what I was going to do, and, you know, I had lofty plans of you know, going to Harvard Business School and, you know, being on the quad and all of these things. And, you know, as I mentioned, 9-11 really turned that upside down. Now, tell me about what you're doing now, about what prompted you to start your own practice and, and all of that. So again, I think I likely attribute this to both of my parents and all of the years I worked with them and seeing how private practices run and the types of relationships long-term that you foster with people. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was you know, groomed uh, to go and do research. And for many years, I was focused on publications and presentations and building that kind of avenue. But then during my pre and postdoc year and doing all of the clinical work, it really turned a fire in me how much I really, really loved the relationship with people and the impact clinical can work can make on the lives of, you know, children and families. And so once I saw that and really was in the trenches, I had made the decision to start my practice, but I knew that I wanted to be near my parents as they aged. And so instead of staying in Baltimore, I decided to move back to 
Los Angeles and I <laughs> opened up shop without really knowing anyone here because I frankly hadn't been here for almost 20 years. And so I just kind of found a shop and you know, put a shingle on and started networking and meeting people and having faith that this practice would grow. And so now I see children, I see adults, I see families, and the focus of my work really is on uh, intergenerational issues with various different uh, cultures and populations. I also focus on um, chronic health issues. I focus on um, working within families, so doing family therapy in addition to just working with individuals. And then I also work you know, on a gamut of things, including uh, anxiety and depression and so on and so forth. But I do have those specialty niches as well. So tell me about the intergenerational relationships or intergenerational kind of issues that come up. Have you noticed some patterns that you see over and over again, or, or some things that you've seen kind of even in your own personal life? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what I do notice is that oftentimes people are kind of afraid to expose within various cultures what's happening in their family units because they don't want to bring shame upon, you know, previous generations, be it their parents or their grandparents or their great great grandparents. But there are particular things that happen within families, be it their parents bring guilt upon them or their parents drove them so hard that it turned them away from a particular field that they may have liked, like the arts or uh, becoming a chef, or particular families actually have a lot of depression, or there may have been suicidality in one family member, but they've been sworn not to talk about it, and another family member may in fact be having severe psychiatric issues, but again, no one's allowed to talk about it. So there is a lot of stigma around particular mental health issues, and because of intergenerational issues, it's kind of the burden keeps getting carried from one generation to the next. And I think that someone who can understand this and understand particular cultures in depth can very safely and very slowly start to unravel and explore this with families or individuals from these families so that these particular cycles or patterns can end so they don't have to pass on to the next generation. So how have you been able to effectively, um, I guess, enhance communication um, within these families? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one thing that I, have been effective with is sometimes starting with like one adult parent, for example, and having them um, explore their own trauma. So for some parents who are refugees or had to, uh, they're not necessarily a refugee, but they had to leave a particular country of origin um, very quickly for their own safety, they're carrying a lot of trauma they're carrying a lot of 
fear, they're carrying a lot of worries. And within that, they oftentimes either project that or displace that onto their own children. And so by working with that particular parent and uncovering their fears and traumas, and also very specifically having them look at what they're doing to their own child. So, you know, I'll look at that specifically, like one particular parent was bullied a lot in their homeland because they were not the dominant religious culture. Now, currently, that parent sees their own child being bullied frequently, but in reality, their child's not being bullied. They just overly identify with their child because of their history. And so by kind of breaking down that trauma, they do not pass on those intergenerational patterns. And so by slowly, oftentimes working with one parent, it's safe for them because they can heal. And then what we do is we bring in the child, for example, and we can do dyadic work between parent and child to heal anything that's already happened between them. And so then we slowly start to add in different layers of the family system. That's wonderful. It's a very, I guess it's such a complex um, problem. And I've seen it, you know, within my own family and of course other families too, that sometimes it seems like it's too big to, to be able yeah. to fix. But, <laughs> but, that, but I can see how if you really break it down and kind of start with the parent, you really could, you know, get through. Um, through to the family. I, I found it in my culture um, that uh, often people are so resistant to even talking with anyone. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the hardest part is to actually get started to be to allow themselves to talk um, to someone outside of the family. Yeah, I think that that is definitely true. I think in many cultures, even the resistance to speak to a mental health professional is like it kind of ends it there. And so sometimes it is working with someone who is second or third generation uh, is where the cycle may stop. And then from there, that person starts the healing. And then sometimes you can start working backwards to those generations, or at least you're working with second or third generation. And then you start moving down the generations that way as well. Yeah, that's definitely something that would require some time and and um, willingness of all yes. parties. <laughs> all parties. <laughs> yes. Now, tell me about your personal life. You have how many children? I have one toddler. She's oh wow. Uh huh. Yeah. And and how is that? You know, you're living closer to family now. Um, how has it been kind of uh, passing on your culture and, and kind of um, having grandparents around? How has that been for you? So it's actually very complicated. So we are in a very multicultural situation. So basically, her father is uh, Sri Lankan of Singhalese background. And then we have my side of the family. And so it is getting even more complicated having her I don't know, very multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic. And um, this has created a very interesting dynamic, especially because this is an area that I study and also manage clinically. 
Um, and so for her, we have been trying to work with her from a very young age to understand her background. Um, and so like, we'll say things to her like, I love you, one million king coconuts. And she'll be like, so which country is that? Is that Greece? Is that Sri Lanka? <laughs> or I'll say, you know, I love you, a million spanakopita. Um, and so for her, she's still trying to grasp also, you know, social justice issues to the extent of like, I don't look like you, mommy. I don't look like you, daddy. What color am I? So especially, you know, this year, as we're seeing so many issues related to race, color, creed, um, creep in it's become very poignant in our family how to talk about issues around discrimination and justice to her. She, you know, uses different languages to describe both of her grandparents. And we try to speak to her in different languages, but it's hard because in our household, uh, we have decided the dominant language is Singalese from her dad and then English from me. But, you know, we're noticing that she doesn't hear it enough that she's able to have a fully dominant second language yet. She enjoys seeing both of her grandparents, but because of COVID and because of various high risk situations for a number of all of us, um, she's been quarantined um, and they have been quarantined more than we would like. And I notice that this kind of critical developmental phase, it is impacting her and her relationship with them more than we would hope. It's a difficult time, that's definitely for sure. Now, how do you have those conversations about um, race with, with a four-year-old? How? What is your approach? So we do a lot of things. You know, we have various books in our house. Um, there are various shows on TV um, that talk about kind of discrimination and race in an age-appropriate way. And then I think we're pretty open about the fact that people have different skin colors and different backgrounds from different countries, and we show it on a map. And we're very open about the fact that people are different. I think historically, institutions and schools have tried to homogenize people. And I think that has been to the demise of children understanding and acknowledging the benefits of differences. And um, I think it's caused a lot of harm rather than good. And so at least in our household, we talk about the fact that difference is beautiful and that there are people in wheelchairs who are different and this is why, and there's people who um, brains work differently and this is why, and that's beautiful. And the fact that your skin looks different and this is why, and this is, you know, melanin turns skin different colors and people in different places of the world have different types of melanin and so on and so forth. And so, this gives her the language and ability to talk about it rather than just having it in her head because it's already there because she talks about it now that she has the language. Otherwise, she would just be anxious about it. Now, do you notice differences, you know, between when you were growing up and when, you know, now that she's 
kind of almost at that school age. Do you notice, you know, differences in how it is um, in be- being in Los Angeles? What do you mean by that? As far as, you know, culture, diversity, um, schooling, like, you know, Los Angeles is a very diverse area to begin mm-hmm. with. But I know that, you know, for, for different folks, it just kind of depending on where you live, there's a varying degree of diversity. Um, you know, has, has it increased in diversity since you, you lived there as a child? What is it like now being back there? I'm trying to think about that. Yeah. I feel like, you know, at least my friend group back in the days, it was so diverse. Um, My friend group consisted of primarily Asian, Southeast Asian, Middle Eastern. The majority of my friends weren't actually not Caucasian. I had a few Caucasian friends, but at least who I was with were not Caucasian. And again, that may have just been by choice because that was my comfort level. I'm not sure. Um, So at least... From my viewpoint, it is still as likely diverse as ever. And at least how we are choosing to raise our child is, you know, taking her to various parts of the city so that she can see diversity all around her. So she's going to Korean markets and she's going to Chinatown and she's going to, um, you know, different Hispanic markets and areas because, again, the way we want to raise her is understanding the diversity and beauty of Los Angeles. And again, that may be because how I was raised. And so that kind of goes back to, you know, my American story. Um, And, you know, the topic of your podcast is that is the intergenerational dynamics of how I was raised which was valuing diversity within the immigrant mentality. And because she also is technically an immigrant herself, since my husband immigrated here when he was 12, I think both of us have that mentality that someone who is an American is really an interwoven piece and parts of so much that we want her to be acculturated to all of that. So we, we really see Los Angeles as an interwoven group of so many histories. It's such a wonderful environment to be raised in um, with such, you know, such an open family and such diverse surroundings. It's, it's really awesome. Um, now tell me, what projects are you working on currently? Um, I know that you are on social media and you have your practice, but are there any other projects that you're currently working on or any interests? Um, honestly, right now, (laughs) given COVID, I am, you know, trying to take care of her. My husband and I are, you know, trading off work days. I'm trying to manage the practice and trying to school her. I recently took on a trainee here at the office, so I will be supervising a trainee. And then I uh, am also trying to engage in a few different group projects around narrative storytelling that are in the mix, and that's in development currently. Um, As you probably can glean from our conversation, I I am very much about 
kind of story and people's backgrounds and histories and how they've shaped them. And so I'm in the process of development of building groups and they're going to be groups related to children who feel and have been marginalized, women who are working and also trying to raise a family, as well as people with chronic illness. And I'm going to be creating groups around their personal narrative, as well as their collective narrative that they're going to be developing together, and how through storytelling, they can heal. Now, where can folks follow you on social media? My website is www.askaskdrstephanie.com. And on Twitter, I am at the same website handle, AskDrStephanie. And then on Instagram, I am the Center for Wellbeing LA. And those are where I can be found. Well, I'm going to have to have you back on when um, you develop the, the storytelling projects a bit more because I'm very curious to see how that comes along. That sounds like a fantastic project. Um, but thank you, you so great. much for, thank you so, so very much for joining uh, me today and telling me a little bit of your story. Now, if you had advice to give to a young woman, you know, who is first or second generation American, third generation American, about kind of just finding herself and finding a path and balancing culture, what advice, you know, what kind of comes to your mind as good advice for this young woman? I think that is an amazing question. Um, I think that I would recommend when you are coming head to head with your parents, which I'm sure is frequently, and you're wondering why they're acting the way they are or saying the things that they're saying or doing things that embarrass you, I would recommend taking a step back and a really deep breath And thinking about what they've been through, the trauma that maybe they've gone through, and taking another deep breath and having some empathy and compassion for them because they've been on an incredibly long and arduous road. And then seeing how inevitably you can internalize and understand their point of view because possibly two months three years, 10 years down the road, there is likely some tidbit of what they're doing or how they're acting that's going to be incredibly poignant in your life. That is fantastic advice. Um, I wish I had heard in my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) It would have really changed my perspective, I think. Uh, But thank you so much for for, um, joining me today and for sharing your story. And I hope to have you back on soon. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks again for listening. Join me next time for another exciting episode. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. I love feedback. Send me an email at HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. Music, courtesy of my husband, Justin Rensing.